the Mueller investigation showed up wanting to talk to you about George. What did they say? What did you tell them? Uh, that's a very interesting question because they were interested both in me and George. The first part of the interview, one hour and a half, was to figure out if I was, if I was a spy. Are you? No. And, <laughs> and, and also, I would like to make a point. If I'm a spy, I would be an Italian one. The president is not being honest with the country about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I think in part he feels that uh, by saying the world is a dangerous place or everybody does it, he thinks it makes him look strong. It actually makes him look weak. Jerome Corsi did an interview where he essentially explains why he's not going to take this plea. He says that the special counsel offered him a plea deal, essentially that it would be one count to lying uh, and that he's refusing to take that plea deal because essentially if he does take the plea deal, then he's lying uh, about the fact that they're saying that he's lying. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and practiced insincere gratitude in moderation. Those forced marches of gratitude around the Thanksgiving table are not my favorite. But I do like it when people show gratitude by doing dishes and bringing sugared pecans with chipotle. How sharper than a serpent's tooth to have a thankless child. As my father reminds me, my father... King Lear, of course. So I'm grateful for my dad because he'd bite me with a serpent's tooth if I wasn't. And I'm grateful to Democrats for showing up at the midterms in record numbers. And I'm grateful to the journalists that continue to hold this administration's feet to the fire with special thanks to Karen Ataya of The Washington Post, who will not rest until we get truth and justice for Jamal Khashoggi. And I'm grateful to the activists and protesters who've not stopped fighting for what can only be called sanity in our country and to Republicans who've made the hard choice to leave their party and to the good American patriots resisting ethno-nationalism in our country. They are America's true base. Okay, I guess I'm not the Thanksgiving Grinch I was pretending to be. So today my guest is, wait for it, a former federal prosecutor. Oh, yes, I'm grateful for prosecutors past and present who are pushing back on the criminal syndicate in the White House. Ellie Honig, three-time Trump cast guest, is a legal analyst for CNN and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, welcome to Trumpcast. How are you? Great to have you in the studio so we could catch up on uh, Thanksgiving and on our, our weird little bar mitzvah sons. <laughs> <laughs> Going through the development that teenage boys go through. Yeah, both of them are kind of swerving to the right or a little <laughs> bit. To, they're defying us like Alex P. Keaton. He was. My son was for a little bit. I think he was feeling Trump early on in the campaign. <laughs> yeah. But he's come around. I don't know if he's developed or he's been indoctrinated by me, but now he sees the madness of Trump. He was cracking up yesterday because there was a story that Somebody asked Trump how much he thought the highest ranking military officer in the United States made. And Trump's answer was five million dollars, which <laughs> even my 13 year old son recognized to be a preposterous answer. So you are a legal analyst for CNN now and uh, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District, our favorite Southern District. I think the it's the oldest isn't it? Doesn't it predate the Supreme Court? I think so. I think so. Yeah, we were founded along with a couple of other districts in 17, I want to say 80-something. Amazing. And first judge appointed by George Washington. That would be a good appointment to have. When judges get appointed, they get like a piece of parchment yeah. that actually says the name of the president who appointed them. I was in Judge Bear's office once, and he had yeah. it. He had a uh, 
uh, JFK appointment, which was pretty cool. But imagine having a piece of parchment that says, uh, you are hereby appointed by George Washington. And he sounds like Washington. (laughs) (laughs) That would be in in ink. I mean, in a a, with a quill. Yeah. So partly the arrogance of the Southern District, the notorious arrogance of the Southern District, where you consider your jurisdiction the planet Earth, (laughs) is somewhat justified by its like its venerable history. But now we're going to move up to something less venerable, George. Geo. Papadopoulos. Oh, gosh. Um, now, why is it a bad idea, do you think, for Papadopoulos to wriggle out of his plea? I think that was his plan, but now it's been shot down. He was trying over the weekend to make this emergency motion to, to postpone his surrender. His surrender day is right now, like okay. a, as we speak Monday. Yeah. Uh, he is surrendering to federal prison in Wisconsin. But over the weekend, he brought this emergency motion to put off his surrender date based on a really convoluted theory. Basically, there's a guy named Andrew Miller who's one of these weird people in the Roger Stone orbit who's fighting his subpoena. Yeah. That got argued to the D.C. Circuit Court. Okay. And it's pending. It's a very much of a long shot. I've written about it for CNN. I think Andrew Miller, it's a Hail Mary of a case. Even if Andrew Miller somehow succeeds, it's not even clear that that would mean Papadopoulos gets relief. So the judge yesterday, Sunday, Papadopoulos' judge said, no way rejected. You're going in today. Um, But I think Papadopoulos' ultimate goal was to withdraw his plea, which would have been completely self-defeating because if he had somehow succeeded in withdrawing his plea, which is really hard to do, you have to show when I pled guilty, I didn't understand what was going on. Not just I changed my mind or I sort of have buyer's remorse. Yeah. So it's very hard to do that. But even if he somehow succeeded, he would be doubly screwed because the indictment comes back and now he can't cooperate. He's not going to just plead again. He's going to go to trial and he's going to get buried. Mm-hmm. Um, and his conduct since then has been so bad and has contradicted some of the things he's done. So he got lucky in a way that he didn't get what he wanted. First of all, I see him saying that he's not going to jail. He's going to camp. Yeah. And he says he spent harsher conditions that. during boot camp in Greece as a teenager. And he's he's sure he'll be exonerated when the FISA warrant is declassified. And you can see how much it resembles the Carter Page FISA warrant, which, as we all know, was all completely buttoned up with every T crossed and I dotted. So it's unlikely that declassification will exonerate him. So it's first of all, it's federal prison, right? He can call it a camp. That's a that's the vernacular for minimum security. But yeah, he's pretty cavalier about it. I mean, I've spent time in federal prisons with defendants and witnesses, and it's a nightmare of a hellhole. Yeah, Uh, and I say that as somebody who sent people there, but I would never be so cavalier as oh, it's not you know it'll be like military boot camp. Not yeah. at all. And the whole thing of he'll be exonerated is ridiculous. What he did, he did what he did. He lied to the FBI. Yeah. And he lied in a very telling way, right? He had all these contacts with this Russian guy who was trying to get him dirt on Hillary Clinton. Is this Mifsud? Yes. Joseph Mifsud. Right. Yeah. Tell and us then about when, him too. Well, right. And then when when he's the professor, the mystery yes. professor, and he was offering um dirt on Hillary Clinton to Papadopoulos. When the FBI came and asked Papadopoulos about it, he told the whole series of lies. But the biggest one is he said, Oh, Yeah, that all happened, but before I was part of Trump's campaign, which the FBI's reaction was, well, that makes no sense, Mm -hmm. and why would he come to you? And, of course, that was a lie, and Papadopoulos pled guilty to that lie to the FBI, and when he was sentenced, Mueller said, that lie was really consequential. It threw us off of our investigation. It cost us a chance to interrogate and potentially arrest Mifsud when he was in the United States or in an extraditable country. So. There's no and Mifsud yeah. is now AWOL, right? Yeah, they're not get, right. He's probably if he's smart, he's going to stay in a country where we can't extradite him, or or on the lamb or something. But um, so Papadopoulos has all these. He's playing into all these conspiracy theories, these deep state theories, 
and, and there's really two responses to, to this whole deep state thing. Number one, it's just factually not true. And the same thing goes for Carter Page. But number two, it's kind of a so what? Even, hmm. even if you were targeted for an undercover operation, you still did what you did. You still committed the crimes you committed. And that goes for all these guys across the board. You know, before people liked to borrow this Turkish term, deep state, um, <laughs> I think Steve Bannon used the expression administrative state. I mean, mm-hmm. what is what? I mean, what, yes, there are people filing for FISA warrants and FISA warrants take some paperwork. Right. But it seems hardly, you know, some band of villains who've clogged up the federal government. Yeah, th- this whole expression, deep state, was something I never seriously heard until recently, but I guess it, I, I guess I'm learning it's more popular than I had ever realized. The notion of a lot of what happens in law enforcement is by necessity secretive. Mm-hmm. And, and FISA warrants, the funny thing is the whole FISA court really came into, into prominence after 9-11 and it was seen as a hard right thing. It was seen yeah. as a George W. Bush thing, a Patriot Act thing. I mean, it already existed, but it really started. Ashcroft. Yeah, Ashcroft, idea, exactly. Yeah. And, and liberals were very um, suspicious of it. And now I think that's flipped to some extent. But the FISA court is kind of like, so there, when you're a federal prosecutor, you can get wiretaps mm-hmm. and you have to go to a judge and say, I have probable cause to think that someone's using this phone in furtherance of a crime. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated. You have to get approval from the Department of Justice. The judge has to sign off. Judges say no sometimes to wiretaps. FISA is kind of a even more secretive version of that when there's foreign intel or terrorism suspects. I never did one personally, but the guys in the terrorism unit at Southern District would do them. They, there were special rooms that I wasn't even allowed in. Wow. You have to go to a judge, and these judges are appointed by, I think, by the members of the U.S. Supreme Court, and they review, and they have to find the the right level of cause, and then they sign off as well. So it's part of our process. There can be a fair debate about should there be a FISA court mm-hmm. in addition to your normal wiretaps. What do you think? I kind of think that you can do what you need to do through the normal wiretap channel. I, mm. I believe in process, and the FISA court does have less of a process, or less of a transparent process, mm. I should say. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's similar to the question that would come up after the terrorism cases. When I started at the Southern District of New York, I started in 04, and there was a lot of questions. Should we be trying terrorists in civilian criminal courts, or mm-hmm. should we be trying them in these weird Guantanamo scenarios? I always believe that civil courts could handle it. Eric Holder and Preet Bharara, who was mm-hmm. were the AG and U.S. attorney at the time, were very strong on the feeling that we could and should use civil courts mm-hmm. for political reasons. It was announced at one point we were going to charge the 9-11 conspirators and try them in the Southern District of New York. That was publicly announced, and then it was walked back mm-hmm. when people started flipping out. So I'm a believer in our existing civil processes. I'm not generally a fan of separate, more secretive or less transparent processes. We've talked before about how Mueller at the FBI turned the FBI into a counterterrorism op- operation. Yes, so FISA warrants might be one of the big tools in his toolbox. Yeah. Oh, look, they're an important tool. There's no question. And I remember you're saying that reminded me, Mueller was head of FBI for most or all of my time at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. And he would do his tours and meet with all the big offices and right. give big speeches. And he was very candid he, he was almost as I think the, the public perception of him is. He's very buttoned up, very direct, very to the point, very honest. Mm-hmm. And I remember he said um, after 9-11, the FBI transitioned from primarily a criminal just criminal prosecution mm-hmm. and investigation agency to an intel agency and a counterterrorism agency. And he said, and that will never change. We will never go back. Hmm. I think he said something like we used to be one third uh, intel and two-thirds criminal, and then it flipped after 9-11, two-thirds intel and one-third criminal. And he said, and, and it will never change, we'll always, you know, for the for the foreseeable future, we will always be a counterterrorism intel agency first. And did you do counterterrorism prosecutions? No, no, no I didn't okay. do them directly. 
So I know you did mob prosecution. So yeah. we, we often talk about local terrorism. <laughs> yeah, we often. T- well, that's actually an important point because it's not totally clear what the framework for Trump's Russia ties is. I mean, what mm-hmm. is what's the model? What's the go by? You know, we've on the show heard out the idea that it might be a kind of a mob roll up and Trump's connections to Russian mafia figures like Felix Sater suggests that there's a component of the actual mob, um, mm-hmm. a kind of RICO. Mm-hmm. But then we have Mueller in charge of it, and there's certainly elements of that could be called terrorism, right? Yeah, or or I, I see organized crime parallels yeah. really more so than terrorism. And I think, you know, there's been spec, but this is one of the great unknowns about this case. Is yeah. What exactly is the hook that Russia has into Trump? And I think it's got to be financial, yeah. right? This is why the tax returns have become such a big deal. Yeah. And, and Russian, the, the Russian government and organized crime, and I did Russian OC cases, yeah. is so much based around this handful of oligarchs, these incredibly wealthy people who control mineral rights and these, you know, multi-billion dollar assets. And it seems likely that Trump has some financial entanglements with them. Mm-hmm. Look at Manafort. If you remember in his trial, he did work for one of these oligarchs. I think it was Deripaska or oh, something like this that. This is Oleg Deripaska, who's copper fortune. Right. I think is now has now evaporated. But yeah, but let's not shed tears for Oleg <laughs> Deripaska. Yes. Um, and Manafort ended up owing him, I think it was $10 million somehow yeah. or other. And then Manafort takes immediately takes the job for $1 or no salary as Trump's campaign chair. So yes. I remember thinking, what on earth is going on? Why? Why yeah. would Trump want this person who flamed out as a Ukrainian political analyst yeah. or, or political consultant? And why would Manafort take the job? But we had a little bit of an answer. There was an email exchange that's been reported where shortly after Manafort takes the job as as Trump's campaign chair, Manafort emails one of his guys, it may have been Rick Gates. It was says, Rick Gates, yeah. Can we use this to get whole with yeah. these guys? How can we use to yeah. get whole? So can we basically sell access to get out of debt? Yeah. But there are so many parallels to the type of Italian organized crime, New York City base. I shouldn't limit it to Italian. I did Albanian, Russian, Chinese. Did you? Um, those organized crime families and what we see out of this administration, they are hierarchical in structure, there's mm-hmm. a boss, and it, and it all go. You can make a pyramid down from there, and it's uh-huh. all about the boss. What the boss says goes. Period. It's it, um, absolute loyalty is expected of everybody. If you show any signs of exercising independent judgment, you are cast out as a rat or a flipper, as mm-hmm. Trump said. Mm-hmm. Everything flows uphill. All the all the big decisions have to be made uphill. That's mm-hmm. one of the big reasons I'm extremely skeptical of. Trump's defense of I never knew about that. Look at the Trump Tower meeting, the 2016 mm-hmm, Trump Tower meeting. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest questions, I think, in this whole case is, did Trump know about that meeting in advance? It is so hard for me to believe that he didn't when the people who set up and attended that meeting were his son, his son-in-law, and Paul Manafort. Yeah. They had uh, days to set it up. They were super excited about it. Look at Don yeah. Jr.'s emails. If, yeah. uh, if it is what you say, I love it. Yep. They invite these Russians into Trump Tower. Yeah have this meeting that they're super jazzed about and never mentioned it to the dad. Right. It is so inconceivable to me. Don Jr. must have been extremely proud that he was possibly getting dirt on Hillary Clinton. So, And Trump, I think, was upstairs, right? Right, I think so. And there's these calls to a block number, and we know Trump had a block number, and so... We also know that other things like the payments to porn actress Stormy Daniels and one other porn print Well, Karen McDougal. Karen McDougal, yes. Not porn, I think she was... 
Well, she's, I don't know. I don't know how you define it. Porn print, but (laughs) yes. um, Yeah. uh, An aspiring fitness guru also. Those payments that he said he didn't authorize, he did in fact authorize. So we know from Michael Cohen's testimony that he was issuing orders. Well, and more than that, it was was big when Cohen pled guilty and said, I committed these campaign finance crimes with and for a candidate for office who we know is Trump. But when the Wall Street Journal article came out two, three weeks ago. Yeah. That really backed up Cohen. It's one thing to hear it from Cohen. Like Cohen's a shady figure. Yeah. And you mean the Democrat, the fan of Michelle Obama, oh my Michael goodness. Cohen? I know. But the, the best detail about— come, Co- to, come to Jesus has now come to Michelle yeah. Obama. The best, the best detail about Michael Cohen suddenly becoming a Democratic Party shill is he's not even permitted to vote because he's now a convicted felon. Right. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. But what that Wall Street Journal article really gave some pretty heavy corroboration to what Michael Cohen said. So look— I've done cases and trials based on some really shady characters, murderers, mob guys, whoever. And the question is always, are they going to be backed up? And, and you can have a really bad guy who has good information. And, and that may be the case with Michael Cohen. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to Papadopoulos and then also Roger Stone and his syndicate. But because you mentioned Paul Manafort and because Ukraine is in the news right now for this naval incident that Russia's attack again on Ukrainian forces. This goes to what Manafort was using to get whole. And it's been suggested, or at least we know that Manafort put pressure on the Republican slate in advance of the National Republican National Convention in 2016. We know he put pressure on them to change the policy toward Ukraine. It seems like in trying to figure out Trump's Russia ties, in Mueller's investigation, the quid pro quo is Americans like Manafort and Trump want money and they want spendable money, not blood money. They want laundered money. And what Putin wants and what some of the other autocrats want, Saudi Arabia and so forth, is prosecution of their political enemies and political freedom to expand their empires. I mean, that seems like we're pretty clearly... Am I getting this wrong? No. Looking at what that exchange is like. I think there's there's a lot of evidence out there that the exchange is sort of money for policy. Yeah. Right? I mean, Manafort obviously is money hungry. He would live this ridiculous lifestyle. I remember from the trial with the ostrich vest and of all course. that. Trump, of course, we know about Trump's lifestyle. And they both have deep financial entanglements. It looks more like Manafort was trying to get out of the hole and get back to his rich lifestyle. But you, you mentioned something that to me is a huge red flag that, that they changed after Manafort came on board. They changed the Republican platform about sales of arms to Ukrainians who are opposing the Russian oligarchs. Um, And that is just almost feels like buying and selling policy positions. Now, look, that happens within our system, right? I mean, we have a whole lobbying system and political donations and super PACs and all that. But it's especially worrisome when it's foreign interest because you may have you may have adverse interest to this. And look, people people said have said the same thing when it comes to Saudi Arabia with the president's absurd under response and embarrassing response to the Khashoggi murder that came out last week. I think it's hard to, it's hard to attach credibility to that kind of international uh, relations decision when you don't know exactly what the president's financial entanglements are. Mm -hmm. And this is where you get into the emoluments thing. And there's that lawsuit that's actually making its way through the courts, which sounds like a sort of wild long shot lawsuit, but but the judge has not dismissed it. The judge has allowed it to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the concern about the tax returns too. We don't know what this guy's into. He hasn't divested. His kids are running the business. Mm -hmm. He clearly has, he said he has millions of dollars of business with the Saudis. Mm -hmm. We know we, Strongly suspect he does a lot of business with the Russians. And here he is making important political decisions relating to those countries. It seems unlikely that Mueller, who was so focused on 9-11 when he 
turned the FBI into a counterterrorism outfit, he it, it seems very unlikely that he will overlook the connections to the Saudis. Yeah, um, yeah. He, and, he's yeah. well familiar with that terrain. Yeah. Let's get back to some of the smaller players in here. Who even knows what someone like George Papadopoulos is in it for? I mean, he has a lifestyle with his sort of reality TV showmance <laughs> with this Italian Simona Mangiante. I only bring that up because that's part of his self-presentation is that he's newly married and in this great love affair. And now he's going to be separated from her for a heartbreaking two weeks. Why was his sentence seemingly so short? It's I, only two weeks. I thought his sentence was, was ridiculous. I thought he would get more, and I thought he should get more. But some people have said that two weeks is actually long for what he pled guilty to, which is lying to the FBI. Yeah, his his range was zero to six. His sentencing range, if you yeah. look at the federal sentencing book, there's actually a chart. Oh, it's I like see. like an X-axis and a Y-axis. Right. Yeah, for somebody with zero criminal history— You'd be on the lowest end of the one access. And the seriousness of lying to the FBI as a first-time offense is fairly low. He had zero to six months as his range. Mueller's team asked for, I think, a full month in, in jail, in prison. And the judge gave him 14 months because the judge was impressed by his level of remorse and acceptance of responsibility, which is... Four, 14 days, right? You yeah, said I'm 14 sorry, 14 months. days, yeah. which has changed a lot. Now he's doing the opposite of accepting responsibility and blaming everybody else and denying responsibility. Unfortunately, you cannot go back and resentence a guy like that. But to me, lying to the FBI is a, is a very important crime because it's a process crime. Hmm. It goes to the ability of Robert Mueller and any other prosecutor and any other FBI agents to do their job. If people... Mm-hmm can get away with lying to the FBI mm. without real fear, without real consequence, we can't do anything. Yeah. So this is like this is like a, a hot button for any prosecutor. You get any former prosecutor agent in this seat and um, we go a little bit, I go a little bit nuts about people who lie to the FBI or lie to grand juries because it's so detrimental to the system. And Mueller's team went out of its way to say, his lies to us were not inconsequential. Mm. Because he lied to us, it hampered our investigation. We could have interviewed and potentially arrested this Mifsud guy, Mm -hmm. but Papadopoulos lied to us and it cost us those opportunities. That's a good point. It's not, I mean, it's usually seen as a lesser charge. James Comey in his book says that lying to the FBI is, in some cases, the only way you can find a white-collar crime. I think it's, I think it was Martha Stewart's charge. Yeah, Martha Um, Stewart was a strange case. I read the book and he's kind of spends a good chunk of it (laughs) apologizing for or making an explanation for why they charged Martha Stewart. And and I actually joined the Southern District right after that. So I I Uh, just missed it, but I was certainly following it. Yeah, Martha Stewart, they had her in on, a, on an insider trading case as yeah. a witness. Yeah. And she lied during her proffer, which isn't even grand jury. It's just sitting at a table like like you and I are sitting at now uh. with a prosecutor. And she lied and they caught her in that lie. And Comey sort of said in his book, on the one hand, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. She had no priors. On the other hand, if you lie, you you disrupt the system. And that's what he said was his reason for charging her. Others said he was just looking for a star to... <laughs> string up or whatever. <laughs> okay, so let's get to Roger Stone, um, everybody's favorite deviant Republican operative, and Jerome Corsi, opera fan and Stone buddy. I have to admit that I've kept my eye on lots of balls here, doing the best I can with my JD from Twitter.com, um, <laughs> but I haven't paid attention to Corsi, so fill us in on Corsi. So you should pay attention to these guys. This whole, uh, it's it's Roger Stone world, mm-hmm. and Roger Stone is a bizarre personality, and he is surrounded by just as bizarre personalities. The reason Stone and his people are so important is they are a key link. And what they are a link between is the hackers, the WikiLeaks, and the Trump campaign. So let me, I sort of think of it like this. We know for sure that the Russian GRU, the Russian state, 
hacked Hillary Clinton and the DNC for their emails, mm-hmm. right? I don't think anyone disputes that. Even Trump would have to admit that. We also know that those emails were published and disseminated by this Guccifer or Guccifer 2.0 and WikiLeaks. Okay. Okay, so that's sort of step two. Step three is, let's just call it a question mark for now. That would be the link. Mm-hmm. But we also know, step four, that the purpose was to help the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. That Mueller has alleged that. It's not really obvious. Look at what they were doing. They were they were leaking damaging emails from, from Hillary's people. When you say Mueller's alleged that, that's in the indictment. That's in the, the indictment GRU. of the Russian hackers. Right. Yes. That was their purpose. Yep. And Putin himself said at that press conference mm-hmm. in Helsinki, Helsinki, right? We Yeah, we wanted Trump to win. But I mean, look at what they're doing. You don't even need anyone to tell you that. They're, yeah. they're hacking into Hillary's emails and dumping them. They're yes. trying to hurt Hillary and hence help Trump. So the question is, is there any link between WikiLeaks, which was publishing the emails, mm-hmm. and the campaign? And up to now, the only thing we have is in that same indictment. Yes, I am a nerd. Paragraph 44 of that indictment. <laughs> Love it. Look men- it up. I, I'm, it's not in front of me. Yes. Can you vouch? I have nothing in front of me. <laughs> He's um, had nothing up his sleeve. <laughs> um, says something like, a U.S. person was in contact with uh, Guccifer or WikiLeaks and was in regular contact with senior members of the campaign. And Roger Stone shortly after said, I do think that's me that they're referring to there. Mm-hmm. And so now we are in this strange world of Stone and all his people, Credico and Assange and Andrew Miller. Um, and who is the link between WikiLeaks and the campaign? Mm-hmm. And if Corsi gets indicted, if he cooperates, he should be able to help Mueller sort out who's who, who's the back channel, who's the direct, you know, who's the indirect and the direct back channel to WikiLeaks. But the thing we now know is Stone denied having any contact with the Trump. He denies everything until yeah. he gets caught. Yeah. He denied having any contact with the Trump campaign, but there were texts that came out a couple of weeks ago showing he was in contact with Steve Bannon at the Trump campaign That's about right. this. Yep. And Mueller alleged that this U.S. person was in regular contact with members, plural, of the Trump campaign. So that when we get those indictments on Corsi, on Stone, we're going to have that link. Another nice witness on that might be Julian Assange himself if we get him extra. Could be, and or... it looks like the, the political winds may be shifting a little there. He may get thrown out of the uh, embassy at some point. We'll <laughs> yes. Say. So, of course, he's a good witness there. Is he implicated himself? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think in two levels. It seems likely that he lied to the FBI. He also, if, he, if you are involved in any way in taking hacked, stolen emails from the Russians and coordinating the release, giving advice on when to release them with a campaign, then you are part of a conspiracy. You are a part of the conspiracy, the overarching conspiracy to obtain those emails illegally by hacking, to interfere with the U.S. election system. So I think there could be sort of a substantive crime and a conspiracy crime, but of course he's such a, a nut. Right, he's a um, conspiracy theorist. He's, a, he's an actual conspiracy theorist. And I think about it from a prosecutor's point of view. I've signed up cooperators who are, as I said before, really bad guys, guys yeah. with long criminal histories, career mobsters, hitmen. And there's a way to do it. There's a way you debrief them. There's a way you get to a point where you say, okay, this guy has enough backing him up. He has enough credibility and I will fight the fight in front of the jury. I will tell the jury, yes, he's a very bad guy. The question is not whether you like him. The question is not whether you'd want to babysit for your kids. The question is, do you believe his testimony here in court? But man, Corsi is a tough one. I mean, this guy's an actual conspiracy theorist. Yeah. He's a birther. So my takeaway on that is if Mueller signs him up as a cooperator, Mueller has hard evidence backing up Corsi. Emails, texts, something absolutely bankable because you cannot take Corsi at anything he says just at face value without having some serious corroboration for it. Okay. I want to talk more generally about Mueller. We had, you know, your friend and former colleague, Dan Goldman, on the show, and he, as I have, as many others have, was speculating that there may be signs pointed to there being an indictment 
soon, imminent, coming out of Mueller's office. Now, this was before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. People like to say that Mueller issues indictments on Fridays <laughs> and that he wouldn't do it during a holiday week. So now we come back again, and even with other things in the news, including the border gassings and other Trump, it's fair to call them atrocities, we are back to this speculation. What do you think about—well, what do you think? I mean, what, yeah. what's what's the evidence that something might be coming? So there's a lot of evidence, and Dan and I and others have been playing every day. It's got to be, you know, yeah, we all text. It's got to be a bunch of indictments today, right? <laughs> um, and we all thought Thanksgiving was, was a prime can- that last week, Monday, Tuesday was prime candidates, and then and then again today, there are some sort of tangible signs. To me, that the most obvious sign is the Paul Manafort adjournment, right? Paul, the, the judge on the Manafort case said, "I want a status report on Manafort's cooperation on whatever ten days ago was today, the sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mueller's people put in a very brief letter saying, Judge, can we just have 10 days? We need a 10-day adjournment until November 26th today because we'll have more information and we'll be able to give you a more fulsome update then. So we're all thinking, oh, well, something huge is going to break between now and then. Well, I don't know. We're on day 10 sitting here. Yeah. I, I, again, I thought today would be the day. But I think, I think Mueller, either he kind of, maybe he enjoys just defying expectations, but I think it's more like, he just does it when he's damn well ready. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't really care if it's when people are expecting it or not. He doesn't really care if it's a Monday or a Friday or he's not necess- he doesn't he's not wed to this idea of doing it Friday. I think his view is just when my guy, my prosecutor comes in here, shows me the prosecution memo, it's ready to go, the grand jury votes on it, then we're announcing it. And if that's a Tuesday before a holiday, if that's a fr- Friday in December, who knows. Yeah. So um, it, he's not thinking like Ellie Honig, that little twerp from SDNY. I'm get, I saw him on CNN saying it's coming. Well, I'm, he doesn't know who I am. No, I, I, I first of all, he, he certainly doesn't know who I am. But second of all, he, um, uh, I've refrained from making that kind of pr- prediction. I've made some predictions, but when it comes to Mueller timing predictions, I've not made any. Okay, so Mueller is known for, at least we who've had enough of the reality show component of this, believe that Mueller is sort of anti-stagecraft. He's so recessive. Mm -hmm. You think of Giuliani or someone else as the sort of opposite of that, and he is, as you say, as everyone points out, this airtight operation that never leaks, and he doesn't seem to telegraph which way he's going. He speaks only in indictments, and and those indictments are like oracles, you know? Yep. But— he still must know a little bit that timing makes a big difference in a prosecution. And, you know, we like to think he does it when it, when he's damn well ready, but he has some showboaters on his team who know that there's a, ga- there's a game to this in the press, who we saw acting out a little bit in the Paul Manafort trial. They were prosecuting. I don't know. You're, you're sort of shaking your head about whether that counts as acting out, but right. you may remember that Greg Andres or someone pushed back on on the judge in that case, I think. Sure. The, yeah. So what do you think? I mean, is there some kind of calculated effect in advance, I should say, right. of the congressional oversight that we're bound to see starting in January? So Mueller or any prosecutor is cognizant of timing. Yeah. Am I taking too long? And it's got to, it's magnified a hundred times for Mueller because the whole world is is watching him. Yeah. If you, if you are taking too long, on a charged case, judges start to lose patience with you. Delay is never in the prosecutor's interest. You always want to press. You always want to move as expediently as possible. Now, some perspective is important, right? Mueller has gone nowhere near as long as so many other investigations, special counsel, independent counsel, whether it's Benghazi, Watergate, Whitewater, all those went multiples of the amount of time that Mueller has taken and didn't yield nearly as much fruit, I guess, Watergate did. But given the number of indictments, I don't think the prosecutors in the Manafort 
trial. This was I was sort of shaking my head a little bit. I don't think they acted out. I actually think they put on a pretty straight and dried case. I think their goal there was to keep drama out of it because they Mm -hmm. had a nice, strong financial case. Mm -hmm. Yes, they pushed back. Yes, they wanted to show the jury some of the more salacious details about the spending and and the outrageous lifestyle. But the judge said enough's enough. They get it. They Mm -hmm. get that this guy Mm -hmm. was living way above his means. So I think Mueller's cognizant. And you're right. There's a looming sort of date, which which is a little bit the opposite of what you would expect. I think the Democrats take over the House in January. Mm -hmm. And I think most people see that as an important backstop in case Mueller gets fired, in case Whitaker shuts things down or limits what he can do. And I agree, but I also think there's a little bit of a danger that the new Democratic majority may start stepping on Mueller's toes. Mm. They've already said, here's the list. We're going to be, in our first week, we're going to subpoena all these people. If I'm Mueller, I'm, I'm thinking, please don't. <laughs> until yeah. until I'm done, at least, yeah. right? If there's someone who's a, a fact witness, in my case, the last thing you want is that person being paraded in front of Congress and being questioned publicly before you've had a chance to use that person either in the grand jury or or at a trial or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. So I would urge the House Dems to, yes, they have a very important oversight role. Yeah. And yeah, it's really important that they fill that, but they also should not play prosecutor. Let's let Mueller and his team be the prosecutors. I will say in defense, at least of Adam Schiff, that he made it clear to me in a panel in Austin that he has been focused all along on money laundering and not he's carved right. out places for his committee that he designed not to step on Mueller's toes. I think he sees himself as his work as maybe a subset or something or a complement to that. Right, right. I don't know. I can't speak for a to Cummings or any of the other anyone else there. And also, you know, you're you could subpoena people on money laundering that overlap with yeah. Mueller and Mueller's not ignoring money laundering. It, it's um, good that Schiff is thinking about that and thinking about not getting in the way. The problem is I thought like that was said, promising. Yeah, I don't know how he would really exactly know. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. there's some things that obviously go to the heart of what Mueller's looking at, but then there's all these tangential things that could, like you said, money laundering could play in. The campaign finance could play in. But it's good that that's on his mind. Okay, so let's say you were prosecuting something like this in New York and you knew that everybody knew about it. It was a tabloid story. Mm -hmm. That is sometimes how it seems to me, the Mueller prosecution with the so-called Trump base that makes it, that really signs on. I I keep being amazed that there are more people that will say, (laughs) like, cite these unreal, surreal statements about Mueller for TV and the popular press who for whoever ever will hire them. So I want to call attention to someone that my friend Karen Schwartz, who's a great follow on Twitter, she's at Pithy Widow, observes that one of the heroes of our time is the Manafort juror. I don't know if you huh. remember this I know, person. I know exactly where you're yes, going. Yes. Yep. Who, okay, who wore a MAGA hat and is very pro-Trump, thinks that the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt, and yet believes that Manafort committed wire fraud and financial crimes and was, you know, was willing to convict him. There's something so, such a relief about that, that there's a check and balance that some people can divide, you know, their politics, their almost the religiosity around politics from evaluation of the facts. And that's what we have to hope that the American people and the Republicans will be able to do. That juror should be held up as a model of what our judicial system and our criminal justice system is about. And I wrote about before the trial, I said, look, it looks like a very strong case of Manafort's guilt. It's almost, it's a paper case almost. Yeah. The fear is what if you get a, from a prosecutor's point of view, I'd be terrified of what if I get a hardcore Trump supporter who just says, screw it. This is my chance to make a political statement. And that woman was that person, but she said, 
She did exactly what juries, jurors swear to do when they get on the jury, yes. which is I will put aside my personal, political, religious beliefs, and I will judge solely on the evidence in this case and the law. And I think jurors often do not do that, yeah. but she did it. And it's pretty remarkable and you know, maybe increasingly rare in this day and age that you say, well, I want to see the facts. So I'm going to give it a, a fair judgment. People are getting more and more entrenched. Just they're going to start out with the end position and then backfill the facts. Yes. Versus let me look yes. at the facts and then determine my position. Or, or even affect a kind of personal nullifier. I remember there was talk of jury nullification in the OJ case. Right. I don't know if that's a term of art or if that's Oh, no, that's a real term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the term I used when I wrote about this. Yeah. Nullification is sort of a prosecutor's, usually a prosecutor's worst nightmare where somebody says, I don't care what the evidence was. I, even if this person's guilty, I'm not I'm not voting to convict for some external reason. Yeah. My personal beliefs, my religious beliefs. I'm trying to send a social message here. Yeah. So that is a real thing. And there's always there's sometimes a debate in courtrooms about whether judges should inform juries that they have the right to nullify another law as they cannot and should not tell juries that. But sometimes defense lawyers say, No, judge, you should tell them that they have the right to do whatever they want, but they don't. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, but it happens. It yeah. absolutely happens. Yeah. yeah. And uh, by the way, on the topic of Trump's base, I was once on a panel with Walter Isaacson, who's oh, yeah. probably like the greatest living historian in the United States. And it's one of the great things about doing this. You get to meet people like him. Yeah. And he made a really interesting point. He said, everyone talks about Trump's base, Trump's base. It, it, it'll hold forever. And Isaacson said, we don't, people who want to knock Trump out of office don't need to turn his entire base against him. They need mm -hmm. to turn 5% of his base yes. against him. Yes. And you see him picking fights with the military, with the SEAL team that took out bin Laden, with mm -hmm. the Gold Star families, with McCain. Mm -hmm. and, and you wonder, has he maybe lost that 3 or 5% of his base? I don't know. Paul, I'm not a political analyst per yeah. se, but that was one of those moments where Isaacson, who's brilliant, said something that I thought was really interesting. Absolutely worth considering. And base, I think, is a misnomer because... There is something fragile about it, as we've seen from military turning. There are a couple of Twitter feeds that suggest mm -hmm. that military personnel and obviously the outspoken generals have contributed to the idea that, I mean, the Republican president has lost military support. Yeah. Um, very unusual in our unusual times. <laughs> Ellie Honig is a legal analyst for CNN, former assistant U.S. attorney in the SDNY. He runs a new institute at Rutgers. Thanks very much for being here, Ellie. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So that's it for today's show. We love Twitter feedback. So hit us up over on Twitter.com. I'm at page 88 and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And I don't want to harangue you, but I kind of do. You just got to join Slate Plus. Now, here's the reason. Trumpcast loves its advertisers. We love Lending Tree and Hunt a Killer. We really do. But if you join Slate Plus, you can hear us without ads and you can support directly the production of Trumpcast and all the great things on offer at Slate.com. So go to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to sign up for Slate Plus today. Our show is produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast.